Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with the Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch, and then we watch them from our perspective as ministers, as theologians, as people who just love movies. Then we gather around for conversation. This week, our guest, Marianne McKibben-Dana, has asked us to go watch Stranger Than Fiction, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask her what this movie has to do with life and ministry, theology, and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Stranger Than Fiction for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be May 6th, the 6th Sunday of Easter. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take just a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our special guest. Marianne McKibben-Dana is a longtime Presbyterian pastor and author of two books, 2012's Sabbath in the Suburbs and the about-to-be-released, drumroll please, God Improv and the Art of Living. I'm really excited to have Marianne on the show. Thanks for being here, and congrats on the new book. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. So today we are going to talk about 2006's Stranger Than Fiction, which is, among other things, Will Ferrell's debut as a dramatic actor in a really unusual sort of role. Ferrell plays an IRS auditor named Harold Frick, a very buttoned-down sort of man, the sort of man who, as the narrator explains, brushes his teeth the same number of times every day. And then one day, Frick begins to hear the voice of the narrator herself, He begins to hear this British woman narrating his life, and he discovers, quite to his amazement, that he is a character inside a story, and then, quite to his dismay, that the narrator has marked him for death. And so what follows is a very unusual search for meaning, involving literature professor spirit guide Dustin Hoffman and anarchist bakery owner love interest Maggie Gyllenhaal, all in the search for this narrating author, Emma Thompson, who holds his fate squarely inside her typewriter. This movie manages to be just as weird as I have just described it, and also entirely watchable, charming, and smartly written, and I am so glad to have revisited it and so glad for the suggestion. But, Marianne, this was your thought for the show, and so I want to hear your take. Why are we in the back catalog for this movie, and... How can Stranger Than Fiction help us think about life and ministry, theology, the world? Thanks so much. I, it's funny to think of it being in sort of working our way back in the catalog, and it's hard to believe that it came out in 2006. So part of it is just a function of how fast time passes, that it's <laughs> hard to believe that it's been out for uh, 12 years. But it's a movie that when it came out, I knew it was going to be one of my favorites. And it's a movie that I think about a lot and I go back to really often. And part of the reason for that is that it is a story about story itself, which is like catnip for me. I love, uh, I love works of art that 
deal with what story is for us as human beings uh, that address that issue. Big Fish is another movie that I think does that really well. And I think that as I think about who we are as Christians, you know, Christianity is a set of uh, propositions. It's a statement of belief. It's a series of ethical principles, but at its heart, it really is a story. It's a story of God and God's people and how we relate to one another. And it's the story of God becoming a human being and, and living among us and entering our narrative in that way. And so just the chance to engage in story and to think about our lives as stories that intersect with one another is has always been really, really interesting to me. So let's talk about the story for just a second, because I think I love this idea that it is a story about a story. Um, and it's a, about authors and characters at the same time, right? Like it's about the decisions that authors make that might affect the world, but also who, how we perceive ourselves as characters within the story. Um, so as, as you watch this again, Marianne, who, who are you relating with more? Harold mm. or Karen, the, mm. the Will Ferrell character or the, um, the Emma Thompson character? Yeah, that's such a good question. Interesting, because I just finished writing a book. And so I can relate to her. It, when we meet Karen in the movie, she has writer's block. And she's trying to figure out how to kill Harold Crick, because that's her thing, is that she kills her characters at the end of her novels. And in fact, her publisher sends in kind of a fixer who uh, is an assistant who is meant to help kind of break the log jam of this writer's block. And so on that level, I can relate to, you know, how do we, where do we find inspiration for the, the stories, not only that we write if we're writers, but that we create in our lives? How do we, how do we know where to, which way to go? How do we know what to do with our the stories as we create them? Um, but I think Harold is really the heart of the story for me. And as he comes to realize that he is in this story that he doesn't have full control over, and maybe not any control over, he's trying to figure that out. Um, you know, one of the things I love, uh, there's a scene after he's consulted with the literature professor played by Dustin Hoffman. He's trying to figure out what kind of story he's in, right? He, so he, um, you know, the professor says, are you in a tragedy or a comedy? In a tragedy, everybody dies. In a comedy, everybody gets married, which I remember that from literature class in college, that kind of shorthand. Um, and so he goes through his life with a little notepad and he keeps a tally because he's an IRS agent, right? And so he has two columns, tragedy and comedy. And whenever something happens that, that sort of is a little lighthearted or pleasant, he'll put a, a little tick mark in, in comedy. And then he'll, you know, if something happens that sort of falls flat or is sort of dejecting, he'll put one in tragedy. And so he tallies up his life in this way. Um, and I think what's, what's comforting uh, for us as people of faith is that we don't, you know, we're going to have our share of tragedy and our share of comedy, uh, but we, we don't need to wonder about what kind of story we're in um, because we're in this larger story that ultimately is working towards redemption. And, and that, that idea to me is really powerful. 
um, that we are that we're moving in a certain direction. And Harold's trying to figure out which way he's moving, uh, but that's something that we as Christians can have some assurance and comfort. Yeah, there's that moment. There's that moment where Dustin Hoffman, I think he's quoting like Italo Calvino or somebody, and he says the continuity of life or the tragedy of death. These are the two sides, the the two sided face of narrative. Um, right. And what's interesting, I think, it's like from a Christian perspective, you can affirm that, but you have to change the 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 word or. Right. It's continuity of life and the tragedy of death. It's both right. that that the 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 Christian story wants to affirm that both of those exist, but that the tragedy of death is ultimately subsumed within the continuity of life. That's right. That's right. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the book um, that approaches improv as a kind of spiritual life practice. Uh, the title again, God, Improv, and the Art of Living, available from fine booksellers everywhere. Um, but uh, this, this idea that in the crucifixion and resurrection, God turns the no into a yes, which is certainly not a, a new idea or an original one to me, but, but improv is grounded in this idea of, of whatever is offered on stage, it is our job to yes and that, to receive it and to build on it. And, and to me, the resurrection is the ultimate yes and. Uh, it is that the story will continue. And yeah. so Harold's trying to figure that out for himself. What does it mean for his story uh, does his story have a future? Can it continue? Can he change this outcome that seems so certain of, of tragedy? And in our own narratives, I think, I mean, it, I find that we get limited by the or when really we should be thinking about the and, right? Like the yes and um, formula is really powerful because it is both affirmation, but it is also the continuation. It is also a way to sort of uh, begin to say, oh, like there's something more than this. That's I thought right. I had this limited imagination about how the world would operate or where my story operates within this larger scheme, but perhaps it's grander and bigger than I than I thought. Right, right. And and one of the most profound things that we can do as human beings is is take take the no's that life offers us and figure out what is the best yes in this situation. I mean, those of us who are in ministry see this all the time with people who I mean, I, I was with a friend recently whose son um, received a heart transplant when he was just a little, little baby. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we got to hear the story of, of this family meeting the family who, um, whose daughter passed away at a very young age and they offered her organs for transplants and saved lots and lots of lives as a result of that. And, um, that's turning no into a yes, and it's not anything we would want. You know, a lot of the things that happen in life, we wouldn't choose for them to happen, but we're just, it's one of the things I love about human beings is, is the way that we can turn that no into yes. And we just, it, it's, a, it's a powerful witness um, and something that I, you know, when, when you're walking with someone as a pastor who's going through that, sometimes all you can do is just marvel at it. Um, the amazing resiliency that people have. And, and I think Harold is, is trying to find that too, because once he, you know, there's a scene where um, Dr. Hibbert, I think is the name of the professor. And he says, yeah, you're, they make the connection. And he realizes that it's Karen Eiffel who's writing this story. And he's like, yeah, you're going to die. 
And so now your job is to live the life you've always wanted until that happens. And, and that to me is turning no into yes, you know, to say, what have you always wanted to do? What have you uh, been putting off? You know, what have you lived too safely about that you can now live more abundantly? And, and I think that um, is ultimately a really powerful, empowering kind of message. I have to say, Adam, like going back to your, your question about where our sympathies lie, I, I, I think, I mean, obviously the film asks us to sympathize with Harold for, for its duration, but there's a part of me that is that, that kind of anxiously sympathizes with Karen as, as, as we go yeah. through this movie. And I think it is because of my kind of, my, my writer-preacher identity, and I don't know to the degree to which you all feel this too, but there is something, I mean, the most profound, profoundly kind of horrific moment in that film for me is um, when Harold calls her and she is sitting there writing his story and she's at the typewriter and she types the phone rings and her phone rings. And then she freaks out and she types it again. The phone rings and the phone rings. And she realizes that the, that the words she's writing have consequence at a scale that she has not previously imagined. And, and, I, and I find that super humbling as somebody who gets into a pulpit most Sundays with, with words that I, like, I know the broken person that they come from and yet they have consequence and not necessarily to this kind of fantastic scale, but the, the, the idea that in the creative process, in the process of, of being a writer, in the process of trying to tell a story, you have powers of life and death in your hands is, is humbling and kind of terrifying. And I, and, and I, so I recognized and had to reconcile with my kind of identification with her as the movie went along. Yeah. I mean, totally. I think it was really, you well said Matt, because for me, there's that it's, it's not just the realization when Harold calls, it's that moment when she's um, sort of destroyed her office and um, Queen Latifah, the, the, the fixer comes in and says like, what's happened. And she's sort of sitting grappling with the fact that people that, that her words have consequence. And, um, and, and it, it terrified me in a lot of ways in part because I'm, I'm, I'm just aware that the, that the stories that I tell that I think are like beautiful or powerful um, might actually be harming people too. Um, and, and it's always hard to grapple with that. You always want to have this, um, this confidence that you, that you're doing good. But, um, but I think it's, it's really important for preachers um, to grapple with the fact that, that we do unintentional harm fairly regularly. Right. And, and it's coming from our good intentions, but, um, but it's largely because of the stories that we tell. And a lot of those stories erase particular types of experience. A lot of those stories um, make other people invisible. A lot of those stories are, um, aren't mindful of particular experiences. And so the, to tell the story is to continue to wound and, and provide small little deaths in the life of someone. Um, and I'm, I'm just aware of that. And I thought that this, the movie did a really good job of having her wrestle with that. Not to mention the fact that it then called into question, and I'm interested to hear from both of you, about like how valuable is art right. in the end? Yeah. Like, is it, yeah. is, it, is, it, is, it, is it more important than a life? Like, right. should, 
and I think about this in a lot of different um, instances where um, where art art prices are, I think, overinflated. Like, should a Picasso be worth two hundred million dollars? Um, or, but I also think about this in terms of like these beautiful antiquities in places like Syria that are being destroyed, and. And I'm, I really struggle with this question, and I don't have an easy answer to it. But this this movie is also struggling with it in a way that I thought was actually quite mature and sophisticated. But what were your thoughts when you were watching this with, with its respect to art? Because the Dustin Hoffman character recognizes that, that Emma Thompson's book, with the ending of Harold dying, is a superb work of art. Yeah, that monologue and- is so chilling when he's kind of explaining to Harold why he has to die for the sake of the genius that is the book. It's such a, such a brutal moment. Right. Right. And And Karen S is confronted with the, you know, she finds herself, I think the, the kind of, maybe it's a layer of irony that she, she believes herself to be the omniscient, narrator sort of puppet master in the in the context of this work that she creates but she too is a character in a narrative and has to come to terms with that and so I think you're right about thinking about the valuing of art but also the conflating of artists um, as these um, beings with this kind of omniscience and omnipotence within the context of what they create. And yet, as you point out, especially thinking about us as creatures, you know, our words do have consequence. They live beyond us. They get either correctly interpreted or incorrectly interpreted in ways both good and ill. And we can't control that. Once it's out in the world, it's out in the world. And it has its own place in the larger narrative, the larger story. I think I think with regard to preaching, recognizing that responsibility actually makes for better preaching. Um, the first time I taught a preaching class, I sensed the anxiety of the students. And so what I told them was like, hey, you know, this is preaching class. It doesn't matter. It doesn't like, you know, this is an opportunity to experiment, to find your own voice, you know, you know, play, have fun, do interesting things. And uh, and the sermons were really terrible. <laughs> 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 and I realized that I had I, I had actually removed a very necessary part of preaching was which was the responsibility um, to the people in front of you, and um, and it was an important lesson to me not just about teaching but also about the the sermon and and its need for um, for people or for the preacher to recognize that this has significance far beyond what you can. Um, gauge or measure right now. I mean, if, if, if we believe that the, you know, that the second Helvetic confession is that the word of God preached is the word of God, then, then every time we stand in a pulpit, uh, this has eschatological significance. This is like far bigger than, um, than we can even imagine. And therefore that responsibility ought to lean, ought to weigh heavy on us. And, and hopefully in a way that, that spurs us to excellence, to responsibility, to thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, thought, too, one of the things I was, I was with a group of colleagues recently, and we were talking about how each of us kind of has two or three sermons that we preach over and over again with different 
words around them, you know, certain messages and, um, and it, it kind of amused me that, that Karen Eiffel has such a set format for her works, which is that the character, the protagonist dies at the end. And, and I almost, I felt a little frustration of, of, you know, wondering, and it's always a risk when you make a work of art about a work of art, does it really stand up? So right. we hear some of her words throughout the movie and, you know, um, as she's writing it, but I thought, really, I mean, yes, we all, this is how we all end up, but, um, there, you know, it's incumbent upon us to try to tell the fullness of the human story, whether we're preaching in a pulpit or writing a novel or, you know, creating uh, visual art, um, to really tell the fullness of that story. And so, uh, it, it was a kind of convicting for me to watch it again recently in anticipation of our conversation and think, ah, yeah, it's like me and my three sermons, <laughs> huh. you know, that I sort of just kind of click, go back to uh, those themes again and again. And there's, we need to get out of those boxes sometimes. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we find a new sermon? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think she finds her new sermon or her new novel um, by being confronted by this character who's an actual person. At the end, she breaks the mold. And, and part of it is just being confronted with this character, Harold, who has such a, a caring heart to say, this you know, he reads the book, he says, this is beautiful, and I think you need to finish writing it. I think it needs to end. And, I mean, willingly goes into this and says, I will be a part of this narrative. And she gets confronted with the power of that and says, I think to Dr. Hibbert at the end, you know, um, a person like that, don't we want to save someone like that? I mean, isn't that person worth, worth saving? That, they, that someone who would be so willing to, to give themselves up for the sake of a beautiful story, and here we can, you know, I mean, there's certainly Christological implications to that, too. So, um, so she, uh, she was able to break out of that. And so how do we do that through being maybe confronted with people who, who can surprise us mm. and confound our, our narratives that we, we kind of cling to and... The, the stories and sermons that we, we kind of fall back on. Well, I think that's a good place to transition. Uh, before we go to the lectionary, I want to remind folks that we are really grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. I want to direct you to Amy Freikholm's new article about clergy health, entitled, Your Pastor Isn't As Unhealthy As You Think. She does such a good job putting all the dire stats about clergy health in perspective. I always love reading what she writes. It is always smart. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine by subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Also, Matt, we're taking a road trip. Yeah. You and me. We are. It's going to be great. I know. The very first... Uh, live in-person Technicolor Jesus. Matt and I are going on the road. We are going to be the keynote leaders at Mo Ranch, which is a Presbyterian uh, camp in, in uh, outside of Austin. Hill Country, Texas. Big city, Matt? I don't know. Yeah, it's the Hill, Hill Country, Texas. Hill Country, Texas, man. It's gorgeous. I was just there. 
Uh, yeah, it's a foreign world to me. But you know, you're gonna be my spirit guide when we're when we're there. So uh, we are gonna be there for uh, their young adult retreat in the fall. This is uh, the first time we've done this, but we're looking forward to working on some cool stuff for the retreat, including, not surprisingly, watching some movies and talking about them. Uh, so head on over to Mo Ranch's website. We'll put a link on our show page and sign up if you are interested. Finally, and this is the last plug, I wrote a book, and it's now available for pre-order. It is called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act, and it is coming out soon. So head over to Amazon or to your local bookstore or to any place where, you know, strange books like mine are sold uh, and buy the book. I worked hard on it, and I'm pretty proud of it, and I hope people read it. Awesome. All right, folks, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for May 6th, the sixth Sunday in Easter. We've got a story from Acts where Peter baptizes the Gentiles in the name of Jesus Christ. We've got a psalm of praise. We've got another passage from 1 John about water and blood. And finally, a passage from John's gospel about love and friendship and sacrifice. Marianne, as you look at these passages, does anything stand out for you as interesting given the themes of Stranger Than Fiction? Well, I think one of the, I mean, we're really in this, this segment of Eastertide working with these First John and John passages. It's, it's kind of love, love, love um, for weeks on end. <laughs> and, uh, and I think we, we see that. I mean, the, the, the theme of love is, is, filtered in and out of the movie. I mean, the, the ultimate act of Harold to, to be willing to be a character in this story that ultimately results in his death is, is an act of love for wanting the, the story to end the way that it, it needs to end. And the way that Karen Eiffel contrives that ending, I mean, the whole movie, she's trying to figure out how to kill him and she's, in these sort of morbid kind of ways, she goes to a hospital and tries to find the people who are going to die to get inspiration from them. And she imagines going off a bridge and all of these things. And, and what she finally arrives on is a very I dramatically ironic, but also touching story of Harold basically dying in order to save a child who's about to be hit by a bus. And um, he lays down his life. I mean, so that's a very direct, kind of connection, I think, to the John passage of, you know, this is, this is how we show the greatest love is to lay down our life for one another. Um, but I also, uh, one of the things I love about the movie, there's a, there's a monologue at the end that talks about the ordinary things of life. Um, and I'm, I'm so struck in the first John passage, this uh, evoking of water and blood which to me are just such ordinary, tangible uh, things of life. They're not abstract principles, although each of them maybe represents, you know, baptism or the death of Jesus, but they are physical elements. They are elements of the physical world. And uh, Eiffel's monologue at the end where she talks about, um, you know, a, a gentle touch on our skin and, uh, you know, uh, uh, an embrace, from someone, it, there's there's just these these things that really matter, and they matter because we are made of matter, right? They're they're just where the rubber hits the road of, of the kind of sacred ordinary of our lives, and so uh, to me, that's a, always an important thing to do in preaching is to connect these 
these big themes with really, really concrete actions and uh, physical markers that help make it real. Um, it's an incarnational faith that we uh, that we espouse, and so we. I think tending to that is always really important in our preaching. Adam, what about you? As you looked at these passages, were there things that jumped out as as connectional for you? Well, I yeah, and in addition to what Marianne just said, I, I that water and blood image struck me too. Just it's symbolic of death. I mean, the, the waters of baptism are designed to be a small little mini death, um, and but it's also invoking the the, the sacrifice of Christ. Um, but I love also that it has a it, it's also a birth image that that the water and blood are mixed with within the moment of birth, and that does that's part of what makes it an incarnational image, as, as to use the word that you just spoke, Marianne. That that water and blood is both birth, death, rebirth, it's its invoking this, the, the sort of regular course of things. Because the truth of the matter is, is that Harold will die at some point. He just didn't die today. And yet we get a sense that by the end of this book, he's, he's, he's living in a way that he wasn't previous, that, um, that he was a he was more an automaton than anything else. He was like his watch had more agency than he did. Like, did you notice this? That he was more machine than than human, and his watch was more human than machine. Um, yeah. And yet, by the end of it, he's he's loving. He's like playing music. He's um, learning how to be a friend. Uh, and so, I, I I love that there is there is a sort of mini rebirth of him of him in um, after this moment of death as well. Um, I love this axe passage. I think it is so strange and weird um, uh, that there's this moment in, in Stranger Than Fiction where Dustin Hoffman, who is the sort of literary critic, uh, says, you know, I've, I've written whole books. I told a whole I taught a whole class on little did he know this. Um, and and I love the little did he know as a sort of slogan for Christian discipleship, <laughs> which is like little did they know. You can think about this with Peter all of the time. Little did Peter know. Peter is always sort of moving and acting and with not enough information. But that's part of his charm, I think. Um, because the fact of the matter is, is when you get into this journey of Christianity, I think one of the hardest parts is realizing how much you don't know and um, how little control you have. And and how hard it is to follow. And this can be a source of like really terrible anxiety. Um, we are just very, we are deeply, deeply ignorant people. Um, and in the face of anxiety, we can exert some sense of control. We can try and quantify the world or order it or impose routine upon it. Um, but I'm also, I'm also struck by the fact that like the Christian call to discipleship is a call to change or to choose this strange adventure of discipleship. It is, it is to, to, to sit in wonder at the strange and amazing things that are happening all around us. And with this Acts passage, suddenly this, the Holy Spirit shows up and like the whole order is changed. And Peter, and I wonder what you think about this, uh, Marianne, is like, it, it seems like he's improvising in this moment where he's yeah. like, let's, let's just, let's baptize them. Right, and, right, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and so, he, I mean, like good improv, it's um, it, it's unexpected, but it also flows from his own experience of he's he's seen baptism. He, you know, this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry, public ministry, and so it's it's kind of falling back. Yeah, I, I just realized we have gone this whole conversation and not talking about talked about Maggie Gyllenhaal's character at all. Um, but she has a similar, uh, she, she went to law school. We learned, um, she went to Harvard and she started baking for her study groups. And that's where she realized that she had her calling and that's how she became a baker. And she said, I thought I was going to change the world in this way by becoming a lawyer, but instead I'm going to change it through cookies, you know? And, um, and I think that that's, discipleship right that's peter going uh yeah let's baptize him <laughs> um right. and and sort of finding ourselves in a place that we never thought but the call is still the same the call to to, to change the world in, in anna's words but the call to discipleship in, in our words it, it's still there it just looks differently depending on where we're situated well and that's the beautiful thing about this improvisatory moment which is like you have to remain in the moment you and so you you have to listen you have to pay attention you have to receive the gifts that are being offered to you and, and then react from a sense of 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 competence that like okay here we are let's do this um we don't need order to disrupt this moment we don't need to impose something um uh some like beautiful theology to like help us figure this out because I think it's really strange. And as a scholar of worship, the, the strangest part to me about this particular passage is that Jesus baptizes people in the name of Jesus, which is different <clears throat> than how we baptize people. Now we don't baptize people in the name of Jesus. We baptize them in, in the name of the Trinitarian formula, in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. Right. And yet that Peter is doing this in a way that is, no longer done, um, except there are a few like small little um, denominations of churches that will baptize people in the name of Jesus, of course, because Christianity is wide and varied and weird. But uh, I love to read this as him being like, I don't know how to baptize people, but I'm going to try. Here I go. Yeah. Um, and that the that there is this beautiful willingness and readiness for him to just jump in and be uh be available to this moment. And, um, and I, I just, I'm just, I'm just in awe of that and the sort of raggedness of it. And, yeah. and I, and this, this movie sort of says, okay, there's an author and this author has a story. And I think sometimes we look at Christianity and we think like Christianity is a story, but it's lots of stories and they're all a little ragged and they don't, really operate according to these narrative theories that you know somewhere along the right. line the the literary critic became the sort of high priest of culture and making sense of the world and um and yeah i blame yale for this but um but at the same time like this world that we live in yes it, it's full of story and we can see our narratives inside of this but also they don't they don't operate as comedy or tragedy they don't operate according to these forms um they're right. they're weirder than that they're stranger yeah, and, than that and we don't see how it all fits together 
until we look back. I mean, one of the things I love about, I mean, this Acts passage and improv in general, I mean, it's very present focused. You don't know where it's headed. All you know is that this is the next step you're called to take. And, and that too is the beauty of Stranger Than Fiction is, is he, he knows what's going to happen in the end, even when he's still trying to figure out like who is the voice and all of that stuff. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to die what do I do in the meantime? And it becomes very, you know, what am I going to do today? You know, and, and the professor's like, go eat pancakes. You know, I mean, just, <laughs> right. you've got all you, we're all going to die. You have a gift of, of knowing that it's going to happen soon. So, so just all you have is today and maybe not even all of today. So, um, and that's, that this, uh, what I love about acts is this just sort of, you know, this, this incremental, um, uh, engagement that's very, uh, I mean, they're, they're not focused on generations from now. They're just like, here's this person in front of me who's, who's ready. Let's just baptize them, even though we haven't worked out the Trinitarian formula yet. So it's exciting. Yeah. How about you, Matt? I think one of the beautiful things about that Acts passage is, is that it is part of a broader Eastertide move that feels very honest to this film for me, which is this move for the, for the disciples from um, following Jesus, which is a perspective of kind of, they want to follow Jesus in the gospel so that they can watch the story of the Messiah happen from good <laughs> seats, yeah. right? Right. They, they, they want front row seats to the story of this long promised Messiah who was going to unfold things as prophesied. And what happens in the resurrection appearances um and then fuller in the opening of Acts is that the disciples realize that they are not, they are no longer watching the story. They now are the story. Um, and, and perhaps it was a lie for them to think that they were watching it from the beginning, but regardless now the the story is, is upon them and within them and, and, and requires them. Um, I preached this, last Easter, a year ago, using a different piece of literature, which is very high art, which is the Elephant and Piggy book called <laughs> We Are in a Book, which my, my six-year-old was reading at the time, uh, uh, which, which is all about Elephant and Piggy who realize, too much to their existential dismay, that they are, in fact, in a piece of literature and that the reader can do all sorts of things to them and they, can, and, and they are subject to the the, the, the passage of time is reflected through the turning of the pages and the book is going to end. And how do we make sense of all of this now that we are stuck inside something? Uh, and, and I think that's part of what, what is happening here. And I think it's part of what Harold has to reconcile with. And so I, I think uh, one of the ways that you see that, and now Acts 10 is a little bit into this movement, but one of the things you see here is, is, is Peter kind of living into his call as being part of a story that he didn't ever necessarily realize he was going to be an agent in, which allows him, of course, to then baptize Gentiles who were far beyond the scope of what the Jesus's Jewish followers ever imagined would be part of that story too. And so it has an expansive quality to it that is really beautiful. I'd like to add um, that the, the, uh, the elephant and piggy story, we are in a book probably owes a little bit yes. of love to there's a monster at the end of this book uh which is another high art children's book are you familiar with this about grover who I tries guess. to prevent grover. you from uh, uh from turning pages yeah 
Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot of really beautiful meta children's literature. That's right, and it gives the child a little sense of agency of they get to, you know, I mean, I I don't know the the more recent one that you're talking about, uh, but I, the monster at the end of the book, you know, and and this kind of sense of I'm going to make this happen by keeping turning the pages, and Grover's like, no, 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 you know, why are you doing this? And um, right. so yeah, it's a lovely interplay of of kind of. Um, who, who's in charge here? Yeah, you get to be the author for a little bit, which I think is right. um, is is deeply empowering, um, at least for young people. But I, I wonder too, like considering that, uh, are there ways where you can provide that agency to congregations in a sort of deeper and more meaningful way within worship? Um, how do we, as uh, as ministers also provide improvisatory moments where people can have, can feel empowered to sort of write part of the story within the worship moment? Well, yes. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that there are opportunities even within the structure of our service of the Lord today. I mean, we, we invite concerns and joys, which, you know, people, I mean, that's, kind of old hat in a lot of places and some places congregations too large to really do that uh, effectively, but that we take that so much for granted, but that is an improvisational moment. You do not know what people are going to say. And I've had, as we all have probably in leading worship, some truly off the wall, you know, and it's easy to get tickled by the, you know, my, my boss's sister's cousin's neighbor, you know, and we, we love people for having such a wide network of, of concern. And we also go, okay, who's this person again? Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in silences, in, in asking a question that you then don't answer uh, for, for your congregation, I mean, leaving things um, open-ended uh, is, is part of that too, but also uh, connecting worship with our life out in the world because that's really where the yes and happens is how do we how do we connect that sense of of uh, conviction here but also uncertainty the little did he know little do we know what we will find when we when we exit these doors and go out into the world well, I think leaving it on that question is a really lovely way for us to wrap up this conversation. Uh, Marianne, thank you so much for visiting with us and bringing this movie to us and uh, engaging us in conversation. I really appreciate your time and congratulations thank again you so on the new much. book. I had a great time. Yeah, likewise. It's great. All right. Now it's time for our last segment called Postludes, which is a chance to get one little more preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam. What's your postlude for the week? So, like I said, I, I finished this book, but I finished this, that book a long time ago, and now I'm trying to write a new one. Um, and I'm writing a book on ambition, and so I'm trying to figure out, like, what theological understandings of ambition have been for a long time. And it's been really fascinating. But there's a story that has come up in the research that I find really interesting, which is um, in, like, post-Elizabethan era England— um, sort of the Jacobean period, uh, there's this story of Richard Whittington and his cat. Have you ever heard of this story, Matt? No, but I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me. I'm going to tell you, yeah. So the story is about Richard Whittington, who is like a poor orphan boy 
who through a series of sort of kind of adventures where he's on a merchant ship, he's able to sell his cat to a king who is enamored by this cat because he's got a rat problem. And because he's never seen a cat, Richard Whittington sells his cat for like a massive amount of money and is able to come back as a wealthy merchant and then becomes mayor of London three times, um, loans money to the king to win a war and like builds hospitals and orphanages. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that um, for most of human history, ambition as an idea has been largely discouraged, especially so in like very rigid caste societies as England was in the 17th and 16th century. And so what we're finding when we read this story is that there is the the inklings, the beginnings, it seems, in this story of a sort of upward mobility as a virtuous pursuit, which is, to me, a really fascinating moment within human history, which is in... uh, in England, you have this story of Richard Whittington and his upwardly mobile life where you can conceivably move from being a peasant to becoming the mayor of London. And we, we and people who talk about and write about ambition tend to sort of think of ambition as beget as a virtue, as beginning with someone like Ben Franklin. But we're finding like hundreds of years earlier within the historical record that these stories are beginning to like prop up. And um and I find Richard Whittington to be a really interesting one, in part because they, in some versions of the story, there is this moment where young uh, young Dick Whittington is an apprentice um, somewhere and hates it and decides to leave, um, which was apparently a, a fairly common problem in the apprenticeship model of vocational schools. And um, and as he's leaving, he hears these the the church bells chime and then he hears a voice from god telling him to go back and um if he goes back and finishes his, his apprenticeship he'll become the mayor of london eventually and the question is is like is this insertion of god into the picture trying to subvert the ideas of ambition that are rising from this new mercantile class and so, I don't know, from a historical moment, I think it's a pretty interesting story to begin to think about, okay, is is this ancient British folklore uh, told to empower the peasants, or is it told to help them recognize that, like, you know, sometimes God does weird things, and it's unlikely that it's going to be you. And so, God has chosen your vocation to be, you know— selling uh shellfish at the at the pier and that's it so it's been interesting for me to just you know comb through some of the uh the english folklore about upward mobility and see how it has been subverted or promoted depending upon your own particular political interests it's been really fascinating stuff right very cool i can't wait to see where that lands and how it unfolds for you all right how about you matt what's your post loop so last week, uh, one of my favorite comedians, Mike Birbiglia, came through Austin with his new show, The New One. Uh, you may know Birbiglia from stand-up or from storytelling on This American Life, or he's directed uh, Sleepwalk With Me and Don't Think Twice, which I think I may have talked about on this show a long time ago. I, I think Birbiglia is one of our great modern storytellers. Uh, great. He threads he threads kind of honest personal storytelling with self-aware comedy as well as anyone, and 
this new show is is a masterpiece. It is it is the story of his journey into fatherhood. I, I admittedly it you know I resonate with it as a reasonably new father, probably more than the general public. But nonetheless, uh, I love it. It is it is not sentimental. It is profoundly vulnerable in ways that I think are both hilarious and super humane. Um, I actually think Brabiglia is doing what a lot of good modern preachers do, which this, which is that he can drive a story right up to the edge of something saccharine and then careen it back to something hilarious, and in neither direction does he kind of fall off the edge mm. and lose that core of honesty that runs through it. Uh, I once heard Tom Long say, and I've repeated a thousand times, that he thought that creativity in preaching was overrated and authenticity was underrated. And I, and I think in his stage presence, Berbiglia has a lot to teach us about that move and what it means to be to be honest in ways that are inviting um, and self-deprecating uh, and profound all at the same time. So the show is nearing the end of its touring run, and it's mostly sold out. So I can't send it send you to it very well, but I assume it will end up on Netflix at some point, and I cannot commend it to you all enough. So I can't wait. That sounds that sounds awesome. That seems like number one utterly tailor-made for you right no it's perfectly it's like oh yeah okay so that was put a petri dish designed for matt caventa but thanks i appreciate it (laughs) yeah and not surprisingly probably tailor-made for me as well so uh that about wraps it up for this episode if you like the show be sure to leave a rating on itunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Hezzy Pull Up Jimbo. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.